know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. In today's episode of 1050 Bascom, we were grateful to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Mark Koplovich, professor in the Department of Political Science and the La Follette School of Public Affairs. Professor Koplovich shared his insights with us on how the COVID-19 pandemic's influence on the domestic and global economy over the last couple of years has evolved. It was a fun, thought-provoking, and interesting conversation, and we learned so much from talking with Dr. Koplovich. We hope you will too. First things first, Professor Koplovich, thank you so much for joining us today on 1050 Bascom. Thanks. It's great to be here. And we're happy to have you. And since this is the first time you've been on the podcast, we want to start with just a little bit about you and your background, along with your teaching and research interests. We're curious about what set you on the pathway towards becoming a professor and also studying your areas of work. So were you like a politics junkie as a kid, or maybe did your love of politics crop up in high school or undergrad? Just what shaped your academic and intellectual interests towards political science and international relations, global finance and international trade? Yeah, they're good questions. I mean, there's this sort of thing where you kind of see the pattern in retrospect, but you know, only over time. So my dad's the sort of guy who like reads the New York Times every day and the news was always on. So like I was born in 1975, but like I kind of remember world events from about 1980 on just because like the news was always on and the paper was always there and my dad was always talking about things. So I just think I kind of picked that up. I don't know that I would say like a politics junkie, but more like a sort of like world affairs news type of junkie. And yeah, like history and social studies was, it was always my favorite subject in high school. And so I kind of knew I was interested in history and politics and economics. And then I was an undergrad at Yale and they have a kind of like a great books freshman curriculum that you can opt into. And that's where I sort of really like I read all of the classics, starting with Plato and Aristotle and then Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, Machiavelli, that stuff. So that and basically intro macroeconomics were like the two things that kind of grabbed me. And then first semester of sophomore year, I took intro to international relations and I took a course on the politics of the European Union. So as you also know, like a lot of my interests are about like the European monetary crisis and the European Union and whatnot. And this was 1993, 1994 after the Berlin Wall had collapsed, this kind of enlargement of the EU into Eastern Europe was taking place. The groundwork was being laid for the single currency and the Maastricht Treaty and the kind of Eurozone and things like that. And so that's really when I started thinking about like, I'm interested in international economics, like trade and finance, and I'm interested in history and politics and Europe. And I kind of don't know what I want to do with that. <laughs> so I started off as an econ major. I ended up as a political science major, but you know, junior, senior year of college, I kind of had the interests that you kind of know I have now. And I just sort of didn't know what I wanted to do with them. Right. So then I, I come from a, you know, a family where there are a ton of lawyers, right? My, my dad wanted me to go to medical school and I was like, I'm not going to be a doctor. So sort of in 1997, the path of least resistance for a social science major from the Ivy League who suddenly decided he didn't want to go to law school 
was to get a management consulting job. And my girlfriend is my wife now, I was moving to Boston. I got a management consulting job in Boston. Um, and I kind of thought actually maybe I'd go into like the business and finance and international finance type of career, get an MBA, do something like that. And I kind of didn't like that. I mean, it was sort of interesting work, but I realized it was not for me. I was working with all these people who wanted to like go start their own companies or move to Silicon Valley or be CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And I was kind of like reading the financial times because the Asian financial crisis was going on and thinking about like, I'm interested in the IMF, I'm interested in exchange rates and financial crises. Like that's the sort of finance stuff and the politics stuff I'm interested in and not really the business stuff. And so I sort of had this as I was working, I kind of had this like, what am I gonna do when I grow up panic when I was about 23? Right. Yeah. Maybe you guys can relate to and whatnot, but, and I'd never really thought about being a professor, right? Cause there's no one in my family who's an academic. And I ended up talking to some professors in Boston, a couple friends who were in graduate school at the time. I thought about maybe I want to get a PhD and like go into the foreign service and do kind of us foreign policy stuff. And, but I came to the academic stuff late. Like I knew I was interested in the research stuff. And I went back and talked to my thesis advisor and a couple of the professors I had had and eventually figured out, like, I think I want to do this teaching and research stuff. And I think it's like the politics stuff and the international finance stuff and not the business stuff and not the law stuff. And so it wasn't a kind of it looks like a clean journey looking back now, you know, like I always had these interests, but it wasn't sort of. I was 17 and I decided I wanted to be a college professor. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear. You know, you have attended so many extremely prestigious institutions and now you're here at Madison. How did you how did you end up here at Madison after your PhD at Harvard, your postdoc at Princeton? How do you make your way here to Madison? <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of feel like it's returning to my roots because, you know, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, about an hour outside of Philadelphia and, you know, was a public school kid. I kind of ended up in the Ivy League, but I was, you know, surrounded by all these kids who had uh, come from big cities and gone to private prep schools and things like that. And so being in Madison and being in a, a place like UW kind of feels very familiar in that sense, even though I spent a long time in the Ivy League. But but the way the academic job market works is you sort of like you don't have a choice. Like the year you're coming out on the job market, you see who's hiring and what jobs are available. And I was fortunate enough to be able to go to those schools as a student and a place like Madison is winning the lottery, right? I mean, it's like a world-class university where the rankings for political science were always in the top 10 or 15 as a department. And I'm also in the La Follette School and it's a very highly ranked policy school. And then you get to live in a place like Madison. I had job offers here in Columbia. Lots of people don't get that choice. The academic job market is tough. So I was very lucky, you know, and I was an East Coast guy and we thought about going to live in New York and all those things. But I came out here I'd never been to Wisconsin before in my life, before I interviewed and, and came out here. And both our families are East Coast, mine and my and my wife's families in DC. So you move out here and you don't think you're going to be here 15 years later, but I love it. So that's kind of that's kind of the path. But it's the academic job market is very different. Like you can't pick a city and then decide where you're going to go. It's sort of, you know, there are there are certain universities hiring. And I was lucky that the year that I was on the job market, Madison was looking for somebody to do international political economy. Yeah, we're certainly glad you chose Madison. And before you know, we move on to current events and your research, a lot of students obviously listen to this podcast. We're aimed at students. Do you have any advice before we move on to students 
who want to pursue the same kind of path that you did uh, in international studies, what kinds of things that those students should be focusing on in like their undergrad? What kinds of, you know, interests should they be looking at? Yeah, I have lots of conversations with students, especially since I teach 140, the intro to IR class, and I meet a lot of the, the first year students. Um, but like, I have to major in this because it's going to help me get a job. And I feel like I'm sort of like the curmudgeonly guy defending the liberal arts. He basically says like, you know what, you should take the courses you're interested in and you can major in poli sci, you can major in history, you can major in sociology, you can major in econ. At the undergrad level, it's kind of like getting some skills and learning what subjects you're interested in. And then maybe you'll go on to later study. But, you know, I think political science is... I kind of feel like we don't have to justify why political science is important anymore, right? And like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I felt like it was more of a, a discussion of like, why shouldn't I go major in economics or go major in computer science? Like you sort of look around the world in the last seven, eight, 10 years and sort of self-evident that politics is important and we should understand it. But my advice for undergrad is very much like you need to learn how to write. You need to learn how to consume lots of information and analyze it. And you need to work with data. You know, the social sciences have become increasingly quantitative, right? And so if you're someone who can think and write and work with data, somebody's going to hire you for a job, right? And you're going to go on to a, a successful career because of what I study and because I think it's really important. And I'm the guy in political science always, you know, amongst all the faculty in IR, I'm the, like, the one who's always saying, you know, all these things about security are really about money and finance. Right. <laughs> so I think everybody should also take a couple semesters of economics just because if you want to work in policy, right, or you want to work in business, you need to understand the economic stuff as well. But I don't think that means everybody needs to major in economics. I kind of push back a little bit against some of the, the, the STEM stuff that we see of like everybody should go into computer science or engineering or, or math because I think the social sciences are great training. And, you know, grad school is professional school. Like, you know, you sort of, you go get a PhD to be trained to be a professor. You go to law school to get trained to be a lawyer. But undergrad is about learning these intro topics, going a little deeper, getting those skills like reading and writing and data analysis and things like that. So that's a lot of my advice. And again, it's like the path I was talking about that I didn't know at 18 that I wanted to be a professor. And still at 22, when I graduated, I kind of was like scattering around, choosing between business, diplomacy, academia, finance, those sorts of things. And I think most people just don't know, right? You know, at 18 or you guys are 21, 22, like, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I kind of still joke, like I'm 45. I love being a professor, but I don't know, you know, what do I want to do 20 years from now, right? Maybe I'll still be a professor. Maybe it'll be something else, but I just think it's so hard to know at 18. So if you can figure out after four years of college, like these are the subjects that I like and I gain some useful skills. That was a successful four years of college. That's great advice. And I think really reassuring for a lot of our listeners. I mean, it's hard because, you know, I was I, like, I, I was like most students, you know, my, my dad constantly like, what are you going to do? How are you going to get hired as a political science major? You know, those sorts of things, you know, and he had made his peace with me not going to medical school and then, you know, fine, he'll go to law school and then fine, he'll go to business school. And I remember like being on the phone with my dad when I told him I was going to leave my consulting job, not go to business school and go get a PhD in political science. And there was this like pregnant pause, <laughs> you know, like, what are you going to do with that? Um, 
and he's still he's, he's funny my dad's you know like in his 80s now and he still sends me like you know articles about you know people from goldman sachs and whatnot like you know when you're going to go work on wall street or like maybe you can do this or that but you know you get the pressure from your parents because your parents want you to like move out of the house and get a job and support yourself and being a professor is not the obvious way to path of least resistance for that. Very, very dad-esque things to do, that, yeah. that seems to be. But I want to I jump into some of your research interests and also kind of apply them to the context of this current moment. So first, maybe we should start really, really broadly with your take on the significance of COVID-19 from both an international relations and global market perspective. Some observers say that COVID-19 is the most extraordinary and disruptive global political and economic crisis that the world has faced in the last 100 years. Do you agree and why or why not? Uh, it's a great question. It's hard to give a I'm going to give you the like on the one hand, on the other hand answer, of course, right? But the first thing is, it's just it's sort of striking that now twice in a decade or so, we've had a crisis that is described just the way that you described it. Right. You know, it's sort of like the global financial crisis. Everybody said, oh, my God, it's the worst thing since the Great Depression. And like we took a decade to recover from that. And now we've got this pandemic and it's the worst thing that's happened since the Spanish flu. Right. So so it's kind of yes or no, like in terms of the magnitude of the shock. Yes. Right. I mean, you look at the numbers in terms of collapse in economic activity and unemployment and things like that. The economy, basically, we had a total freeze, sudden stop of the global economy because everybody bunkered down, <laughs> you know, 11 months ago. Right. So in that sense, like it's, it's exactly as you described, but on the other hand, I would say no, like from a sort of global economic standpoint, it's less serious than 2008 was because it was this totally exogenous health shock to the economy. Right. It's like the world economy was actually growing really fast and pretty stable and things were finally looking good after about a decade of recovery when this hit and it wasn't things wrong with the economy right so if you look back we've had over the last 40 years every seven or eight years you actually have a big financial economic crisis you had latin america in the 80s you had asia and eastern europe in the 90s you have the global financial crisis you had the eurozone financial crisis in 2010 to 14 those were actually crises where like the economy was messed up for one reason or another. And that started in one place and it kind of spread more broadly in the global economy because of economic things like bad policy choices, financial panics, things like that, um, where there were fundamental things wrong with the economy, like countries borrowed too much. There was hyperinflation. Somebody defaulted on their debt. There was a problem with European Monetary Union, those sorts of things. So that's kind of what's weird about it. But it's also if you look at the numbers now, like, you know, the unemployment rate spikes up to 15 percent. And now it's projected to be back to 5 percent in a couple of months because it's sort of like everything froze. And once it unfreezes, we're mostly going to be back to where we were before. The risk is the longer things freeze, you know, and this is why solving the pandemic is the real problem and essential. Right. Because. The longer things go, the more you might have banks fail, countries default, things like that, where the freeze becomes a real long term economic crisis. So it's kind of hard to answer because like if what we're seeing with vaccines and things starting to open up again, if that continues over the next six to eight months 
And we start to think by like the third or fourth quarter of 2021, like the economy is back to some semblance of normal. This will look over the next 10 years like a like more of a blip. Right. And also if there if the Biden administration gets its relief package through, like we've sort of we've learned some of the lessons, I think, of not spending too little on on response to a crisis. You know, the problem with 2008 was the stimulus was small. It ended too soon. There was a lot of austerity, especially at the state level. And we turned a couple of year really serious acute economic crisis into a lost decade. Right. So in that sense, like I think the legacy of 2008 to 18 is something that we're still feeling and we'll still be talking about 10 years from now. I think we'll be talking about the pandemic, how it changed culture, society, how we deal with disease and things like that. I don't think we're going to be talking about how the pandemic affected the global economy 10 years from now. But again, that's sort of like conditional on where things seem to be going over the next couple of months. It actually turns out to be what the trajectory is over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit of a you know yes and no type of answer, I guess. Right. <laughs> In natural professor style. Exactly. Um, right. <laughs> but when we talk about how we're looking into the future on how this may or may not be as terrible as some people think it is, what indicators are you going to be looking for in ma- in terms of making that determination? Like you brought up things like um, the mar- market positions, unemployment rates, size of the stimulus packages. What indicators are you going to be looking at moving forward as data points as to if this is actually as bad as some people are describing it as? Yeah. I mean, the uh, things you look at the unemployment rate, and in particular, the you know you can break down unemployment into the overall rate and then long-term unemployment. So one of the things we saw with the with the global financial crisis a decade ago was people lost their jobs and then they totally dropped out of the workforce, right? So you know you lose your job. It's not you lose your job for six months or a year and you find another job and you're kind of back to working. It's you lose your job. Maybe you're working part time, you never really get back to full employment, and then you drop out of the workforce. And we see like the labor force participation rate dropped from about 68% to 63%. And it hasn't really recovered. And long term unemployment was really high for like seven or eight years. Those would be signs of like these things that were acute short term problems stretched out and became long term problems. And then you could look at like growth rates and inflation and things like that. Right. So, you know, the other thing that, that we've seen with with the economic recovery from 2008 is basically inflation has been below the Federal Reserve's target of 2% for a decade and a half now, which basically means there's a lot of talk in the news this last week or so of like the economy overheating, right? But we're talking about overheating an economy that never got back to a full boil from 2008. So like, you know, if we're if we're looking now three or four years from now and inflation is two and a half, three percent, and it's been that way for a while, and growth is back to three or four percent, unemployment rate is down to four percent or three and a half percent again, sort of be like we got back to the economy running at full bore. But on some of those measures, like when the pandemic hit and it's 12 years after the financial crisis, we had never actually really gotten back to the economy running at full bore. So like on that, you know, we're talking about institutions and what problems COVID-19 has brought to light among our like institutions. You know, there are a lot of people slinging really general terms around like, oh, this is because uh, we have globalized too much and we need to focus on our problems domestically or this is the problem of capitalism because we have let companies run rampant too much. But 
I want to know what are you thinking are some of like the bigger institutional problems that COVID has brought to light, especially in the international and monetary finance sense? Yeah, that's a good question. Like the, I mean, the sort of bigger picture debate of what's wrong with global capitalism is something that's been going on for a long time now, right? You know, certainly since 2008, I think COVID is almost like, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. Like we have another crisis, so there must be something deeply wrong with the world economy and global capitalism. I think in trade-offs, I'm a political economist, right? And uh, Sam remembers this, I think, from 140 when I said, like, you know, the single most important thing you should learn in in this course is that there are trade-offs in everything. And so there are distributional consequences to globalization. Pretty much any economic policy creates winners and losers, right? We've talked a lot about that with trade and the trade war with China in the last few years now. But at the same time, there's enormous benefits. Right? I mean, if you think about the world since World War II, right? And kind of what we we bat around in, in international relations is like the liberal international order, which is basically, you know, mostly openness to the global economy, American hegemony, international cooperation through institutions like the World Trade Organization and the International Monetary Fund and the EU and things like that. Those things have coincided with the longest and most unprecedented increase in living standards around the world over the last 80 years. And if you'll get the evolution of the world economy in the long run, like the world has been, has gotten richer and been more peaceful by almost any metric over the last 80 years. That doesn't mean there's not war. It doesn't mean there's not human rights violations. It doesn't mean that, you know, where I grew up in a steel town in Pennsylvania, like globalization has not been good right? For people who worked in the steel industry in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, where the plants closed in 1983, and they've never really been replaced by, you know, middle-class jobs of the same, uh, of the same level. So there's trade-offs, right? So I think one of the things, the big thing for, for me is spending much more time, I've always been interested in domestic politics and international relations, but thinking much more about like, the problem is less at the international level, but I think what not just the global financial crisis, but now COVID laid bare is like the failure of domestic policies to compensate the losers from globalization, to offset the shocks of globalization. And so that's where I push back you know, and sort of think about trade-offs, like saying that it's capitalism or that it's globalization, like that's sort of what happened with the trade war, right? And, you know, so Trump comes in and he puts up tariffs on all these goods and, you know, a study from the Congressional Research Service came out that basically said that cost the average household about $1,400 a year, right? And sort of you hear the news about farmers in Wisconsin and the soybean tariffs and like the tariffs weren't, didn't create jobs and didn't protect the industries they were designed to help. And everything people bought as consumers in America became more expensive. So that's sort of how I think about it. I think the big lesson with COVID is the U.S. government basically did nothing or, you know, depending on who you ask, worse than nothing for a year. Right. And, you know, there's the human cost of that. But also, like, the lesson we're kind of seeing is, like, I I think that I'm 45. Right. So, you know, I started coming of age being aware of politics when Ronald Reagan became president. And the core message was, like, government is not the solution. It's the problem. Right, our government's the problem, not the solution was, was the quote. And like, I, it feels like something's changing that what we've seen in the last decade, but especially in the last year or so now of like, no, there's a clear role for government policy, right? To do certain things like coordinate a response to a global pandemic, 
right, to the stimulus debate that's going on right now is totally different than what it was in 2009. Biden's talking about $2 trillion. Larry Summers comes out saying he's got inflation concerns and like overwhelmingly is being shouted down when in 2009, that argument actually won the day, right? Not just in the news, but in the actual White House, right? Like, you know, Christina Romer, who was head of the Council of Economic Advisors at the time, wanted the stimulus to be three times as big as it was. And Larry Summers convinced Obama, no, we can't do that, right? The politics of that are terrible. Um, and here's Biden in like the first two weeks of his administration, basically saying, we're going to just, we're going to spend money until we solve this problem. And even in the EU, you're seeing the same thing. They've got their own recovery fund. So this uh, $750 billion recovery fund, especially for countries like Italy and Greece, which is a totally different response in terms of the level of response to the crisis than back in 2010, when the Germans in particular were, you know, no, we need more austerity. Greece has spent too much already. So it feels like something has changed, right? And I don't know if that's going to last beyond the pandemic, but it feels like the politics of, you know, there's more of a positive role for government and that's a more widely popular than it was 10 or 20 years ago. It feels like something shifted to me. I think that's a very insightful piece of analysis. And, I, and I'm, I'm also interested as to if this lesson is going to persist past the pandemic or if it seems like we're going to maybe learn this lesson and apply it to the pandemic, but then maybe resume business as usual. If you had to make a call right now, what which do you think it would be? Well, I mean, the idea that the government is a household and that we should freak out about the debt and deficits is something that never goes away. I mean, there's a, there's a bit of politics about it of, you know, the Republican Party worries about debt when Democrats are in office, et cetera. But just in general, like when you talk about these crazy, large, abstract numbers of we're going to spend $2 trillion, right? Or the US debt to GDP now is over 100%. So it's this like, it's this benchmark, which doesn't really matter because the US issues the dollar, it's the global reserve currency, we're borrowing at negative real interest rates. Japan's debt has been 250% of GDP for 25 years, and they borrow just like we do. Intellectually, I can explain to you why the debt's not a problem. And this is sort of the way we should keep going with policy. But politically, that's a hard sell. You can imagine a, a year or two from now, especially if the Republicans were to take control of Congress in the 2022 elections, that the argument is going to be all about we've spent too much. Our children are going to pay for all this debt. We need to balance the budget. We need to cut back spending, things like that. That really, it, it seems like it never goes away. I mean, you can go back to the economic policy debates of every decade back to the 1950s. It's like Groundhog Day. Like you're sort of watching the same movie of... There are problems. People are talking about spending government money. And then there are people on the other side who said, like, no, the responsible thing is to is to balance the budget. People who study IPE and economic policy like me, you know, when they hear like the government is a household, we should balance the budget. It's like, well, the the government doesn't issue the world's dominant reserve currency in effectively unlimited amounts. Right. The household doesn't. Right. So, um, you know, household budgeting would be totally different if I could print lots of money and issue issue bonds. So I don't think it's going to go away. But again, as I was saying a couple of minutes ago, like it feels like the balance of the game has shifted. Um, and I think part of that, as I said earlier, like we used to worry about inflation because most policymakers in the last 30 years who've been positions of power remember the 1970s and early 1980s when you had the oil shocks and you had inflation of 15 to 20%. And so the big fear of policymakers 
people like Larry Summers, right? And Summers is kind of on the on the left of of this, but you know, people a lot more conservative as a co economic analysts than Larry Summers remember the 1970s and are worried about debt and deficits leading the economy to overheat and we're going to have 20% inflation. That sort of we've had 40 years of low inflation and we've had 15 years of effectively under inflation. So it's harder and harder to like tell a political story of stoking fears about inflation because people can look around, right? And there are fewer and fewer people who remember the 1970s. Like, you know, I barely remember one of my first memories is sitting in the gas lines at a gas station with my dad. It was like 1979 in our giant like Oldsmobile Delta 88 with the huge fenders that was like leaded gasoline at six miles a gallon, uh, you know, six miles to the gallon waiting to fill up the car because of the oil shocks. I remember that barely, but you can imagine like, you know, fewer and fewer people, that's their formative event. The formative event, think ahead 20 years from now, right? The formative event for the average voter will be the things that you guys remember. And what's the formative event going to be? It's going to be the global financial crisis and COVID, right? And, you know, a story that there might be too much inflation because the government is spending too much money is not going to be as convincing politically as it, as it used to be. So again, I'm torn, you know, I'm old enough and I know enough about the history that like that argument never goes away. And we're always going to be having this argument about debt and deficits. But the politics of it, I think, shift because people's memory about what the crisis was. And I think you kind of saw that in America, like for 30 years, the memory was the Great Depression and the New Deal. Right. And there was a bipartisan political support up until the 1970s for kind of like Keynesian economics and government spending and like you look at the Eisenhower era and Eisenhower was a Republican, you know, building the interstate highway system and marginal tax rates were 91%, right? And a lot of that was the legacy of like remembering Hoover and the Great Depression and things like that, you know, and then people remember Carter and, you know, Ford and Carter in the 1970s and suddenly we go in the other direction. So I think the, the momentum has shifted, but I don't think it's going to go, you know, is American politics going to go to the point that basically like, we're Denmark or Sweden, and we think about tax rates of 50%, and we're much more comfortable with, with spending on, on social welfare and things like that. That seems like a stretch in the current moment, but you never know, right? Nobody predicted the last 10 years or these crises either. I'm really glad you brought up austerity, you know, especially because Wisconsin is running at a surplus right now, just with the, like, you know, the projection for this last biennium. There's going to be some hundreds of millions of dollars in surplus that automatically go into some rainy day fund that the governor can't even touch. So, yeah. you know, real fun living in an austerity state. I mean, we we think that's going to be there. Right. So that would actually be good because a lot of the concern a few months ago was there's such a hit to the economy that we're going to have massive state level austerity because there's going to be a hole in the budget. Right. So it it turned out like. You know, the relief checks helped us a little bit. The fact that we're all home and we're still consuming a lot of the, the revenue that people thought was not going to be there is going to turn out to be there. But, the you know, states have to balance their budgets. You know, they can't borrow like the like the federal government can and kind of just, you know, borrow debt and, and debt. And, and the pressure will be the politics of it, as you know, and we know in Wisconsin from the last the last decade is we should get rid of those surpluses and give them back to the voters in the form of tax cuts. Yeah. Right. So and that's politically difficult. Right. So should we save the rainy day fund 
should we spend it on infrastructure or spend it on other things? Should we give it back to the voters in the form of tax cuts? You know, the the politics of that and the politics in Wisconsin, it sort of still looks like it's going to be austerity for the for the foreseeable future. But I was actually, yeah, I've, I've been encouraged to see those numbers in the last few weeks because back in October, November, people were talking about, you know, the Biden plan right now does have, I think, like 350 to $400 billion in state aid, state and local government aid. And back in October, November, people were worried that's not going to be that sort of thing wouldn't even be remotely enough. So it would be it would be a good thing if we had that. What we do with that is a kind of, you know, very divisive political debate, as you know. Yeah, definitely. Going back to thinking about, you know, especially COVID-19, how important is the relatively rapid development of vaccines for international trade and global finance? Because, you know, like, there is still global trade and finance happening, but how important is it that vaccines are distributed so that it can start to happen on the same scale as it once did? Yeah, I think it's the short answer is I'm not exactly sure. It's another good thing they teach you in professor school is like when you don't know, you should actually admit that you don't know. Right? So my speculative answer is it really matters on the migration side. None of us have traveled. Right. The airline industry basically, you know, froze up. Tourism has completely frozen up. So, like, we're all still sitting home buying things on Amazon and like, you know, global trade and finance is kind of happening because most of it is electronic. Right. Or mo most of it is intermodal shipping is still happening and FedEx is still flying all everywhere and money is moving across borders on computer screens and things like that. The thing that's not happening is nobody's moving physically, right, around the world. And so the effect then is really uneven. How do Greece and Italy recover from COVID the same way Germany does? Germany excels in high-tech manufactured exports, right? The factories are still running and the goods are still being produced and sent. So Germany as a country is still earning income and they were already had low unemployment and the economy was growing faster before because of the Euro crisis. You look at a Greece or an Italy, these are countries that are heavily dependent on tourism, right? And I mean, Italy is a bit of, you know, the north of Italy looks like Germany and the south of Italy looks like Greece. But, you know, country like Greece, heavily dependent on tourism, who knows when and if that's coming back at the same level. So I think, you know, if we're thinking about like your question and Sam's question of what are the longer term, I think, I think it widens a lot of the inequities, right? We see that domestically too. I mean, you think about the the data that's out there of minority communities much more heavily hit, right? So any number that you talk about in terms of COVID outbreak, people losing their jobs, loss of income, right? African-American and Latino communities have been much more heavily hit than the country as a whole. And so that's kind of what I worry about, you know, less that the world economy isn't going to recover or the national economy isn't going to recover, but a lot of the inequities and gaps that we had which feeds into, Adam, what you were talking about before of, you know, that political discontent with globalization, right? Or that political discontent with the status quo. When those inequities get wider and wider, you have more people basically saying like the system's rigged, right? So when things are bad, we get screwed. You know, when things are good, we don't experience the recovery. And, you know, that can, that can breed a lot of discontent, you know? So, you know, one of the things there's a, central debate in political science these days is probably about, you know, like what's contributed to the rise of political support for the far right, 
right, in, in democratic countries. And there's a huge debate about economic anxiety versus race and identity factors and whatnot. But it, it is striking, whatever one thinks about that debate, that these patterns correlate very strongly with giant economic shocks to the system. We had this debate in the 1930s because of the Great Depression. Big part of the reason we're having this debate in the last decade now is because of this series of economic crises, right? So it's not always the people who were hardest hit personally, economically, but these sort of anti-system politics and jargon is populism. And there's lots of debates about what that means, right? But the, you know, people dissatisfied on both sides of the political spectrum with the status quo, it happens when you get big shocks to the system. And so that's kind of what I, what, if there's going to be a longer term legacy, I think it's that the COVID shock has kind of extended out that debate probably for another decade now. When we thought maybe, you know, if you, if you looked a year ago, it kind of looked like we were at the ebb tide of populism and far right parties. Like they had peaked in 2016, 17, and then Macron wins in France and, you know, the Democrats win in 2018. And it looks like suddenly maybe it's not as bad as it was, but then you have another big shock, right? And it's kind of, it's too soon to tell. I think in line with what we were talking about earlier, the people seeing a positive role for government, right? The anti-system parties haven't done great since COVID hit, but if the recovery doesn't happen, you can imagine people saying, look, we got, you know, we got fooled again. We voted for the, the parties in the middle and we expected them to do something to solve the problem. They didn't. And we're going to go back and we're going to vote for the far left or the far right again now, because there must be some alternative. I, I think that's a really, really valuable insight. Thank, thank you for sharing that. And we're kind of running up on time here. So I want to make sure that we ask you, what's something that we haven't talked about today or, or that we didn't ask you that you feel like we should have asked you or that we should have talked about? I was joking earlier um, that I'm the guy who's always saying that like all these things in, in politics and international relations are about like international money and finance. So I think that's, that's kind of the thing like I would push on and, and reiterate a little more. I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but, you know, probably the, the area that we didn't talk about where I think that shows up a lot is the other big thing going on in international relations is like decline of American hegemony, rise of China, new cold war, those sorts of things. Right. And so that's probably the, the other thing that I would say, um, I would emphasize that same kind of point of, you know, I think I look at those sorts of IR questions differently than some other international relations scholars and professors in the department who are more focused on the, on the security side of things, where the centrality of the US to me, just like, you know, and how locked in that is for the foreseeable next few decades is much more striking when you look at it on the, the economic and finance side than on the security side, you know, so the, the central feature of the global financial crisis and now this crisis has been the Federal Reserve and the US government has basically played the lender of last resort to the rest of the world. And the role of the dollar in global finance in the last year and a half now has become even more central than it's been from its dominant position of the last, the last uh, 30 years. And so I think that's another that's another legacy. Like we've spent a lot of the last decade of China is going to take over the world. They're bigger economy than the U.S. The dollar is going to be replaced by the renminbi. 
look at the nuclear arms race, look at the Taiwan Straits. Like, you know, the world is different and the US is declining. Some of this is just like, I'm a crotchety old guy now. Like, again, given my age, I've been hearing about the decline of American hegemony since I was like in middle school. And we're like still waiting. When will it happen? It's imminent, but when will it happen? And we're 40 years, we're 40 years later now or 35 years later. So I think that's the other thing and sort of, you know, say for the for, for the listeners and kind of maybe for you guys of like what's what do I think differently from maybe some of the other the other people on the podcast is I think we're still going to be having these types of debates 30 or 40 years from now. A lot of people look at China and they see the USSR and they see the Cold War or they look at the US passing Britain or kind of like the two the two models and the US becoming the world's global hegemon in the 20s and 30s and 40s. I look at China and I see Japan and the late USSR, countries that were rising challengers, but had lots of problems and those problems overtook the rising challenge. I don't think China is going away. I think, you know, they are, you know, one of the two most important countries in the world. And that's going to be, that's going to be true for the rest of my lifetime. But I think I kind of have a slightly different view of, you know, the US is still a lot more powerful and dominant. And I think that also informs our domestic policy, not just our foreign policy, because, you know, as we were talking about with the amount of money we're spending on recovery and investment and things like that, like we can do a lot more than any other country in the world because of our dominant global financial position. And that's kind of not the debate that we normally have with these things. We kind of, again, we think about the government as a household and there's all these constraints. But if we play our cards right, right, I'll be, if I live long enough, I'll be a codger at 85 or 90 and we'll still be having these debates about when will American hegemony be happening and, you know, the decline won't have happened yet. So I think that's kind of the other thing that maybe we didn't talk about that I would say is important. Absolutely. One last thing that we like to ask, ask our guests on 1050 is what are you hopeful about? You know, now that we are, I guess we're now <laughs> two months into the new year um, and about a month into the new administration. But yeah, what are you hopeful about now that we are, you know, it looks like we're rounding a bend in the in the pandemic. I am hopeful that spring training is about to start and baseball season is 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 on the cusp. And I'm a huge Philly sports fan. So I am hopeful that the signs are that Joel Embiid is finally healthy and that he and uh, Doc Rivers are going to lead us to the top of the mountain in the uh, in the NBA this year. So those are the two things that, I, that I'm hopeful for. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that and the, uh, the older people in my life are getting their vaccines. So I'm kind of hopeful about that. And it would be nice to actually see them again because it's been a really long time. But those are, uh, those are a few of the things that give me a little bit of optimism right now, even though it's dark and cold outside. And as a uh, Minnesota sports fan myself, usually the only thing I can be with my teams is hopeful. So I'll, I'll join with you on that one. Um, Fair enough. The only thing harder than being an Eagles fan now, you know, since 2018 is being a Vikings fan. All right. Very true. Thank you so much for all of your time. We, yeah, we really loved you. having you on. It was fun to chat. And uh, yeah, I'd be happy to come back. So just keep me posted. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.